This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is a special edition of Crime and Punishment with Attorney John Pucci. I almost said Law and Order, but it's the same idea. Well, we could rename it like that. You know, we have the we have we, we have the power. We have the power to classify. <laughs> wait a minute! Wait a minute! It's my show. <laughs> no, you're like Congress. You have no power. We can just do anything we want because we control the board. Okay, John Pucci. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to start this morning's edition of your segment, whatever it might be called, uh, by asking you about the article on the front page of the New York Times about Donald Trump, the uh, legal proceedings that are going on in Brooklyn, of all places, regarding the papers that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. Interesting to me, the New York Times, in this news article, it says, this is getting kind of complicated. We're going to try to sort it out for you in so many words which is not the usual way in which the New York Times goes about reporting. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what is going on at the present time in the last day or two and what is apt to happen with regard to the litigation around the papers, the documents, the other items that were seized by the FBI in the search and seizure at Mar-a-Lago. Help us understand what's happening. So just to be clear, the New York Times cannot figure this out, and you think I, I can no, I didn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I can take a stab at this. It's really complicated, of course. Uh, and a lot of it is under seal, and a lot of it concerns a search warrant which has been redacted and not disclosed in its entirety. And the search warrant's part of a grand jury investigation, which is secret and confidential. So there's a lot of aspects of this and elements to this which are not available to me the New York Times or anyone in the public, only to the lawyers that are engaged in, in you know, in this venture. So with that said, um, we, we now know it was a bit of a surprise that the parties actually agreed that uh, senior judge Deary, who's a judge in the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, longstanding judge, early 80, in his early 80s, was by agreement uh, uh, accepted by both sides to be the special master to examine the documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. Um, Judge Deary was a, is a Reagan uh, appointee. Uh, he's been very independent. He's been critical of the FBI periodically. Um, he People think he's very smart, very astute, still can throw the fastball. Uh, at his age, and um, obviously had to have um, been willing to accept this appointment because it's not an assigned case uh, the way that cases are assigned to sitting judges. It's really just an appointment that he agreed to take, and it's surprising, as I say, both sides agreed to him. So they've agreed on one thing. This is about the only thing they've agreed on. So what is happening now is um, that he has taken the helm uh, of the task uh, of reviewing all the documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. John Pucci, could purpose- you stop, stop there for a second? Just, I think this is where you're going. Tell us what he is reviewing them for, and then after his review, what his responsibilities are. Okay, so he is reviewing them. There's a, le- a, 
approximately 11,000 documents. And he is reviewing them first for attorney-client privilege to determine whether or not any of those documents that were seized are privileged. And if they're privileged, then they, uh, at least in the first instance, cannot be used by the investigators who are investigating the violations of law relating to the Presidential Records Act. So he will, of the 11,000, I think it's been suggested there are 500 documents that may be subject to the attorney-client privilege. He will segregate those. He will determine if those documents reflect communications between a client, Mr. Trump, and uh, his attorneys. And if so, they'd, at least in the first instance deemed privileged, they'd be put in one box. The second box is, uh, is, 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 is a much more amorphous uh, box, which is executive privilege. And it's really not a box. It's an entire claim for all the records. And Trump wants to assert executive privilege as to all the records, and therefore they cannot be handed to the investigators. Uh, it's uh, a dubious claim. It's a claim that has, uh, with very little law, developed around the area of executive privilege of the president of the United States, what it means, what its parameters are, how it applies to a former president. All of those things are really unknown and unresolved. He wants to put all of those, all the 11,000 uh, documents into a box. I think Deere and say, you can't get them, investigators. I think Judge Deary is going to have to opine as to whether or not executive privilege applies in this instance to these records. And then there's another level uh, of review for to determine whether the records are classified or not. And that's a, that's a battle between the parties with Trump suggesting publicly, publicly, but not on paper yet, that he declassified all these records, so his possession of them is a lower tier violation of law. And I think that uh, Deary will be called upon to to provide an answer as to whether he thinks he de did, did, did declassify these records, which would reduce his criminal exposure here to a lower level, so kind of a misdemeanor, federal misdemeanor kind of violation. And then Deary, now by November 30th, Judge Cannon set a deadline, November 30th, he, he is to report to her his findings, and then she can either accept them or reject them or, or, or selectively accept and reject. And we don't know what she'll do, although let's just say that her role in this whole thing and how she was selected is suspect. And uh, one would be concerned about the fairness uh, and the lack of bias um, that one would want from a judge in that space and whether she brings that to the table or not remains to be seen. But it's suspect given her, uh, how she became a judge, how Trump made her a judge, and most importantly, how they selected to file the case in front of her, specifically judge shopped to bring the case in front of her. Right. I want to come back to that in just a second because it really does cast this case in an entirely different light, making people think, I think, with substantial reasons that this may be a fix on behalf of Trump. To the extent it can be fixed, Trump and his lawyers may have fixed it. But I want to go back to the declassification versus classified argument for a minute, because what the Times article today pointed out is that Trump has claimed that he declassified it, the, all of these documents. There's nothing classified here. This is no big deal at all. And what the Times article pointed out is, yes, he has said that, but his lawyers haven't said that. Uh, and he has not said it under oath, because if this kind of a claim is made in court and it's not true, 
the lawyers are in trouble, and Trump, if he were to say it under oath, would be guilty of perjury if it weren't true. So can you sort out for us how that is going to be resolved? This claim of I've declassified all these documents, there's these documents, there's nothing here. Well, okay. So first off, it's clear that some of the records were classified. We've seen photos, for instance, of documents, uh, binders, uh, folders that are marked classified with legitimate government classification stickers. So at some point in their history, these documents were classified. I don't think there's any fight about that. The issue is whether the president, then President Trump, declassified them, which he has the power to do. He has the power in general to declassify information as the president of the United States. And if he declassified them, there's a whole policy and procedure that's in place that he was supposed to have followed and his, his lawyers and the staff at the White House were supposed to follow. And there's apparently no evidence whatsoever other than uh, that, that he, they followed that policy and procedure. Now, is the violation of that policy and procedure to declassify a certain way with certain specificity through this channel of uh, laid out in the policy, is that a crime? Probably not. But the issue is really, if he did, if he did not declassify, declassify them, and they are now remain classified, his possession of them is a high crime felony. And it's a big problem for him. If he did declassify them, then his possession of them is a, it's a much lower level crime. And um, so uh, Judge Deary is going to have to try to figure out uh, whether they were, what level of classification they would be. And the Trump people, interestingly enough, have said, we don't want to say what our basis for declassification is because we want to preserve that in case he's indicted. And they have said that on the record. So they are anticipating a substantial likelihood he's going to get indicted and he wants to preserve this for his criminal defense. And the judge has said to them, I, that's fine, you can do that, but I'm not going to, essentially he said, I'm not going to consider these classified unless you give me a basis to do so. And if you're not willing to do that, then I'm going to proceed without any basis to declare them declassified. They'll remain classified in my view. And when we say classified, we're talking about national security classifications, confidential, secret, top secret documents that can only be seen in a specific location that is uh, impenetrable by uh, perceived and very well actual enemies of the United States looking for the information in these documents. I mean, th these are serious matters, this classification. And the process of declassification is something that, well, it's a process, but the president has the power to declassify, and maybe he can say, well, I may not have done it perfectly, but I stood over these documents, I spread my hands over them, and I blessed them, and they are now declassified because I said so, which I think is what he's saying. Yeah? I, th I think so, too. Is that legal? Is there is there any precedent for declassifying things in that manner, or is there a procedure by which things are usually declassified? There is a procedure by which they're declassified. It clearly was not followed in any way, shape, or form, but it doesn't resolve the issue of whether or not he can wave a magic wand over them, as Bill has suggested, and, and announce they're declassified. It's uncertain. Uh, but whether he even did that, uh, whether he even told people and communicated to people 
during his presidency, right? He can't declassify him after he leaves office because he's no longer president. He no longer has that power. So if, if he wakes up the day after he, uh, uh, Biden's uh, uh, inaugurated and he's no longer president and declares them declassified, that has no basis in law. Does he have to prove that he ever declassified them, even by the magic wand method? Yes, ultimately, he has a burden of proving that the records that he took from the White House were no longer classified. So and he therefore, but he can't just say, oh, yeah, when I was in my, alone in my bedroom, when we were packing up the Lincoln bedroom, I decided by myself in there to declassify them all. Or is that going to stand up in a court? Does he have to put in any sort of documentation that he's declassified anything? To prove it. It's, it's unsettled law. Wow. But what, what, what he would have to prove, he would have to have some proof besides his own statement, in my brain I declassified them. I went in a closet and declassified them. He'd have to have some proof that it actually happened, Monty. So there would be witnesses. He would sit in a meeting. He would say, I'm going to declassify these 12 boxes of documents. I'm going to take them to Mar-a-Lago. I don't think there's anything potentially problematic there. I am here by declassifying them. If six people who were in that meeting walk in and say that happened, I think arguably they've been declassified. But he has to prove, he has the burden to prove that. That's his defense to the possession of what were once, and perhaps still, classified documents. We're speaking with Attorney John Pucci. This is our segment, Crime and Punishment. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to discuss how Donald Trump picked the judge who he appointed out of a Federalist Society list. His judge is now the judge who will decide whether or not these documents are going to, in fact, be reviewed for criminal potential criminal prosecution or not. We're going to hear that, that discussion right after these messages. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications through September 30th. With class sizes averaging 10 students, Smith Academy can offer more than 20 clubs, 7 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work studies and internships, free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College, and computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college-bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call them or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Feed the birds naturally. Winesick Nursery has trees and plants that can feed backyard birds. Choose plants that produce berries like dogwood, service berries, cherries, and blueberries. These also attract caterpillars, the preferred food for baby birds during nesting season. Invite hummingbirds and butterflies to your yard with bergamot, red columbine, honeysuckle, clethra, and viburnum, just to name a few. Get plants, feeders, seed, and everything you need for the birds at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and at winesicknursery.com. We are for the birds. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Have we got some exciting news for you. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. We're extending our offer to save up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. There's still time to get a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Check out our new website and start your application now at bestlocalbank.com or come see us in person. As local lenders, we're 
We're here for you every step of the way. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Kimberly Gates, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer, or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with attorney John Pucci on this segment, Crime and Punishment. Not law and order. I don't know why I want to say that today because, well, although really this is a matter, what is happening with Trump and those papers is very much a matter of law and the rule of law. We'll come back to that in just one minute. John, we promised our listeners that we would delve into this question about how Trump not only appointed the judge who was hearing the case, but contrary to how the selection of judges for a given case usually works. He managed to pick the judge who would decide the case regarding the seizure of those documents from Mar-a-Lago. So how did he get to do that? Why does Trump get to do what nobody else gets to do? Well, before we get to how the jury sh uh, judge shopped it to Judge Cannon, of course, uh, just a brief review is the fact that Trump selected nominated her and pushed her onto the bench so after right after he lost the election to biden in that three-month period where he remained president they selected he selected uh, aileen cannon uh, who's really not qualified uh, in many ways she, she's no fool she's got a good education uh, card um, and has some professional accomplishments but at the age of 40 is really not was not ready in for the federal bench. He picked her out from the Federalist Society list, far right wing organization that, that forces and pushes forward Republican far right judges onto the bench. He picked her, nominated her for the bench and our friend from Kentucky, the good Senator, senior Senator from Kentucky pushed her onto the bench. And so between losing the election to Biden and his stepping out of the White House, Aileen Cannon was selected for the opening in Fort Pierce, Florida. For the so federal district court. For the federal district court, the trial court in federal court in Fort Pierce, Florida. Now, why is that important now? Because um, they filed the case 
this case uh, challenging the search warrant and, and, and leading up to the, the special master appointment. They filed the case in Fort Pierce. Now, for those of you who are not experts on Fort Pierce, on Florida geography, and I'm not, I did look this up. And there are many, there are federal, the federal district court in Southern Florida has six or seven different courthouses. Many of them, the largest being in Miami, has 15 or 20 federal judges. So if you file it in Miami, file a case in Miami, it goes on a wheel and it can go to any of those 15 or 20 judges. Um, they're assigned randomly and there's no way of telling who you're going to get as a judge. But if you file the case in Fort Pierce, there's only one judge and that judge is Aileen Cannon. And it's there that the Trump group surveyed who they wanted to decide to this case and they filed it in Fort Pierce. And lo and behold, the only judge there was assigned and that judge is Aileen Cannon. Now it's interesting, the local rules in Florida provide that all actions and proceedings shall be tried in their county of origin. Now the county of origin is where the conflict that gave rise to the lawsuit of the criminal charges arose. Now the county of origin in this instance is unequivocally Mar-a-Lago where the search occurred. Mar-a-Lago is in Palm Beach. Palm Beach has a federal court and instead of filing it in the county of origin, which would have been West Palm Beach federal court, which is where Mar-a-Lago is, they filed it in Fort Pierce, which is in a different county. It's in St. Lucie County in Florida and it's 50 miles uh, north of Mar-a-Lago. So under the rules, it should have been, it should be proceeding in the county of origin. And again, the county of origin here uh, is Palm Beach, where there are a number of federal judges who could have been assigned the case. But instead, the judge shopped it to Fort Pierce and it got assigned automatically to the only judge there, Cannon, who's the judge he put on the bench in a rush as he was leaving. Um, and that's how it happened. And the, and the rules there don't really allow um, to attack on their face. I looked at the rules. They don't allow the assignment to be attacked on its face. The government, I think, could have filed a motion to transfer the case to West Palm or Palm Beach. They didn't do that. Um, and so it got to Aileen Cannon. That's how it happened. They picked her. They put her on the bench. They wanted this case in front of her when, when it arose from the search warrant. They chose to file it in a, in, not in the county of origin where it should have been filed, but rather in a separate county 50 miles away. So they did something that is contrary to the rule and the rule of law, but they seem to be getting away with it because there's been no order that the case be transferred back to the county where it should have been filed. Why wasn't there an order? Why didn't the U.S. government apply to, to move it to where it should have been moved to in the first place? There was a, did they just forget? No. They knew immediately when they saw who the judge was and how far it was from Mar-a-Lago that it was not consistent with the rule, which requires that proceedings be, be filed and tried in their county of origin, in this case, Palm Beach. So they knew it was judge shopping. But let me, let's be honest, Bill. Let's be honest, Monty, for once. There's judge shopping that happens um, in court proceedings. In state court, people hold their motions until the certain judge is on the bench, hoping 
for a favorable ruling. In federal court, there's less of that. Um, but you can even you can judge shop in Massachusetts uh, if you think one one of the districts uh, one of the judges is particularly favorable to you. You might file the case in Springfield where there's one judge, or Worcester where there's one judge, rather than Boston where it goes in a wheel to one of the other ten judges who are randomly selected. So um, it's a it's a maneuver. It's not illegal. Um, it has a certain scent to it, if you will. Um, but it does happen, and um, they did it. We're speaking with Attorney John Pucci. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have two questions for him. What did the Attorney General say over the weekend? Merrick Garland is, is important to this situation. It is vital. We also want to find out what is the Attorney General in New York going to announce today. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Two minors who were reported missing last night are home safe following a search in Wilbraham. According to Wilbraham Police, the 11- and 15-year-old were last seen walking their dogs around 5 p.m. A command center was set up at the Wilbraham Middle School on Stony Hill Road as authorities joined forces to search for them. Officers confirmed they were found safe just after 9.30 p.m. in the woods off Harness Drive. Police say the children just got lost and were not injured. Outreach is underway in Amherst to black of African heritage residents who may qualify for the city's reparations program. The African Heritage Reparations Assembly is charged with studying and developing reparations proposals following a resolution by the town council in December of 2020 that affirms their commitment to end structural racism. Residents can fill out inclusion forms through an online portal at engageamherst.org AHRA. The town has committed $2 million over 10 years to the fund. A police investigation is underway following an unattended death in a Palmer neighborhood Tuesday. Palmer Police Sergeant David Byrne says a person was found dead at a home on Orchard Street. He said there is no threat to the public. No further information could be released at this time. Greenfield City Councilors are expecting a large turnout at their meeting tonight as residents are expressing frustration with the return of Greenfield Police Chief Robert Haig. Greenfield City Councilor Doug Mayo tells Mass Live the mayor decided to sidestep justice and appoint him. Mayo says the public has lost faith in the chief. The meeting will take place at the Johnson Community Center at 6.30. Mostly sunny and mild today, a high of 74 to 78 with a light breeze. Variable clouds tonight with the chance of some late night showers, 58 to 64. Showers and thunderstorms likely here tomorrow, 66 to 70. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las escuelas de Massachusetts por primera vez enfrentarán el requisito de evaluar a los estudiantes jóvenes para detectar dislexia y otras posibles discapacidades de aprendizaje al menos dos veces al año, según una política que los funcionarios de educación estatales aprobaron el martes. Apuntando a lo que el secretario de Educación James Pacer denominó una estrategia de esperar a fallar, la Junta de Educación Primaria y Secundaria votó unánimemente a favor de las regulaciones que establecen estándares estatales para que los distritos supervisen el progreso de alfabetización de los estudiantes. Sin embargo, la nueva normativa entrará en vigor hasta el 1 de julio de 2023. 
En otras informaciones, el superintendente de las escuelas públicas de Holyoke, Anthony Soto, envió un comunicado a las familias y residentes de la ciudad de Holyoke en relación al impacto y consecuencias del huracán Fiona y su paso por Puerto Rico. Muchas áreas han experimentado o están experimentando fuertes vientos, inundaciones y cortes de energía. Soto señaló en su misiva que sabemos que muchas personas de nuestra comunidad tienen lazos estrechos con Puerto Rico. También sabemos que algunas personas están aquí en Holyoke como resultado del impacto devastador del huracán María en 2017. Soto reconoció que se espera que algunos niños y familias de la isla puedan venir a Holyoke. Por tal motivo, exhortó a la comunidad a que si conoce a un estudiante que esté reubicando en Holyoke, incluso temporalmente, se refiera a la Oficina de Servicios de Matrícula Estudiantil para obtener apoyo. Reconociendo que las catástrofes naturales no solo afectan a las personas que las sufren directamente, sino también a personas en nuestra comunidad local que pueden estar experimentando malestar, ansiedad o trauma, el superintendente Soto invita a los estudiantes y a las familias a que se pongan en contacto con su consejero escolar para recibir apoyo. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci about Trump's legal travails and what is happening in federal court. Outside of court this past weekend, John, there was a speech by Attorney General Merrick Garland that you think was of particular importance. Tell us what it was, what he said, why it matters. So Attorney General Garland spoke at, at a swearing-in of 200 or so Uh, immigrants at Ellis Island in a formal swearing-in procedure process. Um, he chose Ellis Island, he said, because that's where his um, ancestors came from. Interestingly enough, uh, there were five of them. Two, he had five uh, father, mother, and, and some siblings. Two of them died in the Holocaust. Three of them came to Ellis Island and discovered America that way. And he gave a very emotional speech at the swearing in. And I can only interpret it one way, that it was spoken to the pe people that were being sworn in and, and towards Donald Trump and his crew. And he said things like this, the protection of law, the rule of law, is the foundation of our system of government. The rule of law means that the law treats each of us alike. There is not one rule for friends, another for foes, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, a rule for the rich, another for the poor. The rule of law is fragile. It demands constant effort and vigilance. It is, and, and he concluded by saying it is incumbent on all Americans, and he's talking to the immigrants directly, to do, quote, do what is right, even if that means doing what is difficult. Sounds like a message for Donald Trump. We are going to leave it there. We expect a, an announcement from the Attorney General of the State of New York, New York, Letitia James, with regard to the civil case against Trump. We're going to wait for that announcement. We'll come back with John in the next day or two, I hope, to review what is happening in that civil matter in New York as well. John Pucci, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your time. And Have a great day. And And now we are going to turn to Via Con Muñoz because we want to know what is happening in Puerto Rico. We want to know how serious the situation is on the island. We want to know about these uh, uh, remedial efforts that are being made here in western Massachusetts, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today. Natalia, I turn the microphone over to you. You have a very special guest with you and with us today from Puerto Rico.
Thank It's you, ladies. Este, we're, gonna be, we're speaking with Josie Valentin, who for many years lived in Holyoke and became a city councilor. And then este, moved back to Puerto Rico, lives in Sidra, which is in the country. It's a rural area. Josie Valentin, I love you. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, Natalia. I am doing okay and just very, very grateful for all the support system uh, that we have out here on the island. And what a way to come back home, huh? Yeah, what a way to come back home. There's a, you were telling me earlier that you're on your way to a, uh, the house of a family member because they have solar panels and that way at least you can turn on the fan and not be in the terrible heat when you go to sleep at night. Correct. Yeah, we um, we have a, a couple of family members who, after Hurricane Maria, um, you know, made some significant investments to get into solar systems. And so uh, one of them is a, a cousin of mine um, in Bayamón. And so she uh, very graciously opened her home to us last night so that we could sleep comfortably, charge our phones and, and just spend some quality time, you know, with family and, and support. And uh, I'm just very grateful for that. Este, Josie, what, uh, you know, as you're our correspondent from Puerto Rico today. You know that, right? So, and we will oh, be sending God, you a big check. Este, <laughs> I, I think that part was not true, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, the second part especially. The, the, tell us, in your opinion, how, how did the government of Puerto Rico prepare? Did it prepare well for this hurricane? Were you all prepared for it? Uh, the response to this to the hurricane what do you think and how horrible or not horrible is the situation is there water is there power are there lines down is the island functioning give us that overview as well if you would please absolutely so i'll start by telling you that saturday night um my wife and i cooked a nice meal in our new home in cedra uh, which is about 35 to 40 minutes from san juan and then that evening at two in the morning um we lost power and shortly after that, water. And that's when um, the storm really arrived. And so I think the difference between this storm and Maria, and I think this is really important for folks to understand, especially those that are looking for ways to support um, the, the people of Puerto Rico at this point, these are very two different storms. If you remember, um, Hurricane Maria had winds of up to 175 miles an hour. It was a Category 4. Um, and so the wind was extremely devastating, as well as obviously the flooding. However, this storm, um, the flooding has been unbelievable. And so, for example, there's a town that's 15 minutes from, uh, from where we live in Sidra. It's a town called Calle. And Calle receives, in less than two days, 30 inches of rain. So if you imagine folks that are living by rivers, folks that are living in areas that are prone to flooding, um, these are folks that have lost everything. So as you're thinking about how to help, um, you know, it, it's the idea of how do, how do we rebuild at this point? Because it's about flooding in areas that may never be uh, areas that people can live again, right? And so that's very different than, for example, I think, With Maria, as you talk about the government response and, you know, electricity and, and water and access to all of these resources, I think people were prepared in a different way for this one, but not for the flooding. And so right now, only 25% of people in Puerto Rico have electricity. So when you think about that, and this was a Category one hurricane, right, compared to a, a Category four hurricane with Maria. And so the fact that only 25% Only 25% of Puerto Ricans have electricity right now lets us know that whatever happened in the last five years 
in terms of the grid and the government was not a success because we should not be in this situation with a Category 1 storm that did not have 175 miles per hour winds. In terms of water, only 50% of Puerto Ricans on the island right now have water. Like, of course, a lot of this is connected to electricity, but I think it's really important to understand that the difference between this and Maria is that, for example, stores for Maria could not get enough supplies. So people, you know, couldn't access food. They couldn't access all these different things. Now those stores, in the last five years, have invested significant money into into huge generators. And so people can go and access you know, the Oye, Josie, Josie Valentin, who lives in Sidra, Puerto Rico, who used to be a resident and city councilor in Holyoke, um, you know, right, when the governor had a press conference, even the electricity went out just as he was beginning his conf- press conference to reassure Puerto Rico that, ah, we're going to be fine. You know, Luma, the, the company that we sold our utility to, they're on it. And the lights went out in the middle of his press conference. Also, and even though the lights came back on a few uh, seconds later, they went out. And Luma right now is under investigation from Leticia James, the the attorney general for the state of New York. No, no, not for the state of New York, for the South. Bill, you know this. Leticia James? Yeah. She is is the attorney general. Oh, for, okay, for the New York, she's investigating Luma. She's investigating the, uh, the, the electrical utility company that bought our utility, because like Yossi says, it's been five years. You'd think there'd be much Mm -hmm. more progress on the grid. There's no progress Mm -hmm. on the grid. And just like Yossi says, a a relatively harmless hurricane has destroyed Puerto Rico again. Absolutely. And you know, Natalia, the interesting thing is, my wife and I moved back home here end of April after 23 years for me in in Massachusetts and 32 for her because we wanted to come back to our homeland. We wanted to give back to our community. We felt like it was time to literally come back. And so since we've lived here, we've noticed that even if there are not hurricanes, the electricity, you know, is completely unreliable. There's, you know, a day where there'll be some rain and all of a sudden, boom, the power is gone. That should not be the situation five years after Maria. Yeah. Bill. And the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Front page today, it says, under the team organizes care packages for Puerto Rico, that's the headline, dozens of items needed in wake of devastating hurricane floods. It says this, as of Tuesday afternoon, approximately 80% of the U.S. territory was without power, with no indication of when power would be restored, according to Power Outage U.S. Any indication as to when power will be restored, when the people of Puerto Rico will have water restored? So it depends on who you talk to. When Luma does a press conference, which is uh, the company that Natalia was talking about, uh, yesterday they said that by the end of this week, you know, the, the, the majority of the island should be fine. And then backtracking later on, uh, the spokesperson said, oh, no, that was taken out of context. So they don't even have a clue as to what the timeline is going to be for this. And so the people who prepared after Hurricane Maria that had the money to do certain things where they could buy generators and get solar systems. And those are the people that right now most, most likely are the ones that have power because only 25%, like I said, of the island has power right now, and most of that is in the metropolitan area. Puerto Rico has 78 cities and towns. It's not just San Juan. And yeah. so it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things where there's, there's this very 
metro area centric narrative going on that if you go to stores and powers are powers on everything is fine well a lot of those is actually with generators so it's uh it's it's not it's not an accurate narrative so to answer your question you know there's really no specific timeline um they're focusing primarily on areas where hospitals are located because it's very obvious that we do not want a repeat of hurricane maria in terms of the deaths that came afterwards because of loss of power Josie Valentin, thank you very much for este, letting us know what's happening on the ground in Puerto Rico. I hope you and your wife and your family and your friends are safe, have, este, are in good health, because as we know, even some hospitals don't have generators that, that work. So yes, Absolutely. the power will return to Puerto Rico when the people of Puerto Rico rise against corruption. Este, that's my deep thought. When the people of Puerto Rico return to power. Boricua. Boricua en la luna. Absolutely. Gracias, Josie. Un abrazo. Thank you. Thank you so much. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more, deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are under an avalanche of apples and everything from the orchards up and down the valley. Galas and Honeycrisps, Macown and the good old-fashioned Macintosh, along with pears, plums, and other delights from the orchard. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. Parents want the greatest opportunities for their children. Given the amount of time our children spend in school each day, parents want their child to be inspired, to be engaged, and to love going to school. At the Bement School, our students experience this every day. Bement's dedicated faculty and staff know each student well and work steadily to help each one discover their best potential. Bement's strong elementary and middle school academic programs, balanced with the daily fine arts and performing arts, as well as the physical development gained through daily gym or team sports, help students grow, learn, and become their best selves. Bement serves students in kindergarten through grade nine, Financial aid and area transportation are available to assist parents in making an independent school education possible. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. Want to learn more? Contact me, Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission, or visit our website at bement.org. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. 
So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Estamos de... Oh, perdóname. What am I doing? <laughs> That is your intro. That's how you're doing exactly what you should okay. be doing. Okay. <laughs> we are here with Josie Valentin eh, from Puerto Rico. And now we also have on the line Lisa Gallardo, also from Puerto Rico. Lisa lives in the mountains of Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico in Calle. And Josie Valentin made a reference to Calle a little bit ago. Lisa, how are things in Calle? Hi, how are you? Good morning. Um, good morning to everyone. Well, uh, it's been really hard. This hurricane, actually, it was first a storm and it, and it got to Puerto Rico finally as a Category 1 hurricane. And uh, it it brought so much rain. In the case of Calle, we received close to close to or or a little bit over 30 inches of, of water, of rain. And the problem is that Uh, of course, this provokes so many floodings of the rivers, of the different um, water uh, mudslides of the area. In mudslides. mudslides, yeah. Actually, my home there, we weren't able to come out the first two days after the after Fiona due to due to the slides of of, of, of the debris, um, vegetative um, debris, and. Um, a lot of mud. See, Lisa, uh, you live a really strong car. You couldn't, you couldn't come out. Lisa, you literally live on a mountain top. Este, were you, were you on that mountain top for the hurricane? We were, and um, the, we started feeling really strong winds uh, uh, the day before the hurricane began, um, because of course we were receiving already the different ráfagas. Um, um, Uh, the ráfagas, the wind gusts of wind. The gusts, right? Mm -hmm. The wind gusts um, mm -hmm. that from Fiona. Uh, so, so you know, we uh, you're, we're very privileged. I mean, we have a strong home. We are um, located in a place that we know is not going to get flooded. So that makes a difference, right? Um, I live with my mom and and my aunt, who are seventy year old women. And we all learned a lot from Maria of how to navigate literally. These, what what did you learn from Maria? This is a question for both of you. First, Lisa, what did you learn from Maria? What are well, some of those well, lessons? You know, um, we learned that we cannot trust the government to help us out before, during, or after these um, events. Mm -hmm. We have to um, we have to make sure that we have a strong community uh, to help each other. And that means making sure that we have access to our own water, to our own um, generator or power source, uh, food for a few days. And um, uh, like I read the other day, I mean, this hurricane might be a category one um, storm hurricane, category one, but the government inefficiency was a category five. And we have learned, but the government have not learned. Uh, and we are we have no water we have no power este, again and this is happening again in puerto rico after the government was supposed to learn their their uh, how to, uh, yeah how to manage life. a crisis este josie okay, are you still there josie yeah. so yeah, what, are, there, what are what are the lessons what are the lessons for you uh, uh, from maria i know you were here you were living here and you helped organize 
este, raise the consciousness of people here that Maria had happened in Puerto Rico and how people can help. Um, but now you're in Puerto Rico and what are the lessons that you have learned? So obviously, you know, five years ago, which, you know, just to remind folks, the five-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria was actually yesterday. And so for the island of Puerto Rico to be under these conditions five years after Maria to the day is, is just completely unacceptable. And I completely support everything Lisa was talking about regarding the government and the inefficacies that obviously we keep, to see, we keep seeing. And so for me, it's different because obviously I wasn't here five years ago and now I'm here as a resident full time. And, uh, and to experience this with the people here, completely agree with Lisa. This is all about community. Just yesterday, you know, we went to the panaderia, which is the local, you know, bake shop to buy some bread. And immediately you just start getting and engaging with conversations with people about what do you need? I don't even know you, but are you okay? Is your family mm -hmm. okay? Did you have any damages? And that sense of community is never going to come from any government. It's always going to come from the people, the hearts of people. You know, we have uh, uh, just stories upon stories. And, and just a couple of days ago, a family that we sent a Boricua Care packages to in 2017, um, Medium and I had started that initiative in Holyoke, and I'm so glad to see that they're re-launching re, um, it under the leadership of Priscila Rivera and the city of Holyoke and the mayor and all these people that said, you know what, Josie and Miriam did this in 2017. We got to repeat this again. And the beautiful story of somebody who we sent the care package to in 2017, they live in Cidra. And literally that person messaged me two days ago and said, you sent me a package five years ago. How do I help you now? And those wow, are the wow. kinds of stories that you say, oh, my God. And so that woman is now a business owner in Cidra. She owns a Mexican restaurant that I love. I didn't even know she was the owner. And yesterday she showed up in, at my house with one of those huge water um, uh, collecting cans, right? Like those wow. drones that we call in Spanish. And she said, so that when the city comes, you can get potable water delivered to your home. I left mm -hmm. one of those in your mm -hmm. garage. So those are the types of stories that the government will never be a part of because it's about that community. And, and, and I just want to say very briefly, it's not about, oh, the Puerto Rican people are resilient because they are. It's <laughs> about we shouldn't even be in this situation. So when people say, stay safe, stay strong, of course we appreciate those words. But what we, what we really want to see is a government that works for the people, that is not corrupt, that we don't have to be in front of La Fortaleza, which is That's the, yeah, the, La Fortaleza is the governor's mansion, yes. Yeah, we, we don't want to have to go protest about Luma. We, we want to be able to live in a community that offers us power power and water and it's reliable. Right. Luma is the, the, the company that can, can, Canadians, Canada, Canadian and American company, they formed a consortium and bought our utility, which was sold by our government. And, you know, utilities should never be sold, should never be for profit. Uh, and now exactly. this utility is for profit. Basic human necessities, you cannot make them for profit. Like, you know, here with the health care, in Puerto Rico, selling our utilities, exactly. our airport, that is a a, problem. education, yeah, privatizing todo. Human rights. It's a privatizing mm -hmm. human rights. So, okay, yeah. Bill, you want to say something? I want to ask a question. Uh, note that uh, Josie Valentin is featured in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette front page article with regard to her efforts in 2017. There's a lot of information about how people can be of assistance. And with regard to these care packages, uh, uh, Josie or Lisa, could you tell us, please, how can we help? Lisa. Oh, sure. Well, um, Elisa, we have just a minute. 
Yeah, um, uh, okay, you can visit um, the Instagram page of Amnistia PR, Amnistia PR, and there you can find a whole list of organizations in Puerto Rico who are providing everything supplies to give out to communities, and those are really good organizations that Amnesty um, supports. Uh, also, you can help Amnesty itself um, through <laughs> our Amnesty, Amnistia Puerto Rico. Uh, basic human rights. Because we are working... Yeah, because we're working with a core of observers and we're going to be visiting the shelters, making sure that human rights are being um, protected. Este, that's fantastic. It, it, and also what something that both of you have said before, it's just, it's just we create community in crisis. We're really good at, at that. Do we need to be in crisis all the time to like work together? Because mm -hmm. we already know we're the government it, it's no good. Very quickly, we have 20 seconds. I just want to say very quickly um, that the, the message here is connect with people that are on the ground. Make sure that you are giving to communities and organizations that are doing the work boots on the ground because they are the ones that are getting Gracias. the services and the supplies. Gracias, Amba. Thank you both. Lots of love to you both. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at WHMP.com. news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.